Well, for many years uh, in this building, we were kind of afraid of the third floor. We wondered if we would ever go up there or need it, and we started sneaking up there, which was really fun. You needed kind of a hazmat suit to go up there. It was so uh, dangerous and noxious, and uh, there were these baby beds that were, had been illegal for many decades. They were, uh, the way they were constructed and made out of lead-based paint, right? So any lawyers would be like, get them out of here. But we just kind of had them up there, and sometimes the staff through the years would go up there. I had a big part in it, and we would be, you know, we'd bring like a little play baby and put it in the baby bed at night, and the silhouette, like the lights, and then we would shoot a video and um, really sick and demented stuff. So anyway, give us money to help us with that, even though we're sick and demented. Appreciate you guys. Hey, we're, us. we're becoming students. We are students of the greatest writing on love in human history. And we are rescuing this 1 Corinthians 13 from the quagmire of romantic thought and activity. Yes, we read and quote it at weddings, but Paul did not write this uh, for weddings. You, know, you think of weddings and you think of long toast the night before and flowers and frilly dresses that they never wear again and a garter that's thrown and somebody hopes to catch and, and be the next one. And that's all well and good in our culture and many other cultures. But this was written to a church that wasn't getting love right. He praised them for the things that were, were happening. He planted the church. And, you know, I think I'm speaking to some people in the room. When you start something, you care about it. When you've invested from the very beginning, you really do care about it. And Paul and Timothy and Silas and some others had planted the church. They had sailed the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world for other churches. Romans 15, my ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has never been preached. And so, but he cared about what started. And so he writes back and he's like, you guys are getting love terribly wrong. Do you remember the third verse of the third chapter? We put it on the screen last week, and I think previously. Uh, you're worldly. You're still worldly. Uh, you envy, and you have strife among you. So he's writing. And by the way, love, real love, confronts. When you're not getting love right, if you see someone that's busted up in love, that's not loving well, it's a loving thing to help them because you don't want. That's a miserable life if love isn't working for you. Not necessarily romantic love, but love itself, because that's the way God made you to know and be known, serve and be served and love and be loved. And so we're learning in this chapter when he says that everything, if, if you have everything, but you don't have love, you have nothing. And you can scratch your head on that and go, well, that's hyperbole. That's exaggeration. There is some of that, uh, that some of that rhetoric in this inspired text, but um, he's saying, listen, it's true. And if you've lived long enough and you've failed at love, the other stuff doesn't matter much. Y'all know that, right? There are people my age and older uh, who know that, who learned that. And so he, everything, if you have everything, but you don't have love, you have nothing. So as we become students, it's really important to realize that love, um, it's the acquisition of good character. Love is the acquisition of good character. It's so easy for us to think that um, I would be a more loving person if God would put more lovable people in my life. You ever thought, I mean, that's the laziest thing ever. And I don't, I don't know if you notice this, but God, he, he's not here to serve you and just make your life pampered and pleasant with all perfect things. And God just, I don't, I don't know that he's real busy trying to put perfectly lovely people, lovable people in your life. And so there's a different way to think about love. What, what if we thought about it as the acquisition of character and virtue, of us not sitting around saying, I'll be more loving if God puts more lovable people in my life. But if we said, I want to commit to God to letting him grow what love is in me. And that's the essence of what we're looking at. So week one, we said, hey, this is how religion gets love wrong. And then week two, we kind of started into the 13th chapter. Love is patient 
and love is kind. And last week we said love does not envy. There are 15 different delineations in this 13th chapter about love. And some of them are on the negative side. Some of them on the positive side. He ends it with love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's the positive. But today I want us to hit on something that's from the negative side of things. But if we heed it, uh, it'll be positive in our lives. We'll reap the benefits. So it's this. Love is not irritable. I told my Friday morning men's group, they said, hey, Robert, we just talked about love does not envy in my office on Friday morning. I said, hey, what's this Sunday? And I said, love is not irritable. And it's like a collective groan. I'm like, what's, what's up? And they were like, I want to make sure my wife is here for this one. That's what they said. I'll have to give you their names uh, later. But love is not irritable. Would you say that out loud with me? Love is not irritable. If you're very Presbyterian or stoic or you're, you're nervous about saying things out loud, just pretend that uh, I'm Coach Prime and you're the Colorado Buffaloes. All right, so let's, let's have fun because we're coming. Right, here we go. Let's say it again. Love is not irritable. It can be stronger. Love is not irritable. Now let me ask you, how are we doing? Irritability is it's a mood. And you say, well, preacher, that's not a very religious word. Let me tell you, your mood and mine is deeply connected to our spiritual condition. And irritability is a mood. Many of the English translations render this, love is not easily angered. Love is not tr quickly triggered, we would say. Love is not irritable. So irritability is a mood. Now, moods come in many shapes and sizes, don't they? Generally speaking, there's two kinds of moods. There's good moods and bad moods. I mean, I'm, I'm a smart dude, aren't I? I mean, that, you can't beat this kind of preaching right here. That there are moods, but there are good moods and there are bad moods. Irritability is one form of a bad mood. And in this, a, a person who is irritable is quickly triggered. A person who's irritable is easily angered. A person who is irritable is quick to take offense and to lash out in different manners. That's an irritable person. But love, let's say it again, church, love is not irritable. It's not irritable. Love is a mood and moods come in many shapes and sizes and a mood will, it, it dictates, or I'm sorry, it indicates, not dictates, it indicates the spiritual condition of your heart. Are you typically a good mood person or a bad mood person? What kind of mood do you tend to be in? Your body, your brain, the very neural circuitry of who you are is, has a tendency to move toward a mood. Is it good or is it bad? Irritability is a mood and it can be a dangerous one. Irritability is uh, interesting. Now, let's, let's make note of this. It, even though it's rendered not easily angered, notice what it says, not easily angered. He doesn't say that love is not angered. He doesn't say that. We're watching some family matters in the greater Jackson community, some people we know. And I couldn't help think after talking to some close friends the other night about, you know, if this man was a, a leader in his family, if he got angry when he needed to get angry, if, if years ago he put his foot down and he stepped forward and said, I care because love does protect and love, listen to me, love does get angry. But love is not easily angered. In fact, Ephesians 4 is famous. It says, be angry. That's a command. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. James chapter 1, uh, the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger, though, can be a good emotion, but being easily angered, wrongly angered, is to be an irritable person, and that's not love. Not only is irritability 
a mood. But irritability is, I call it a gateway drug. Because irritability leads to sarcasm, it leads to resentment, it leads to deep cynicism and despair. And before you know it, the irritability, being easily angered, has damaged kids. It's destroyed marriages. It's led to violence. I mean, actual violence. We have a funny definition of violence. Uh, everything's violent today uh, by the definition of some on social media, but actual violence. But look, every irritable person doesn't become violent. Thank God. Some of you are like, good. Not every irritable person doesn't become violent, but every violent person is irritable. Every violent person says, I'm going to take this into my own hands and I've become angry. I can't keep it in anymore and I've got to go after them. So irritability is a mood. It can be a dangerous mood. It can be a gateway drug. It's easy to look at this word and go, ah, irritability, such a trivial thing, not a really big religious thing, no big outcome in my life. But it's a big thing. Would you say it with me again, church? Love is not irritable. So what do you do? What do I do as this thing convicts us, as we see the gap between what Scripture says love is and what we're experiencing in our own lives. Well, Paul says it in the letter. I didn't invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 again today like we've done in previous weeks. But uh, if you see, uh, if you do have a Bible open or already turned there, you'll see what he says next. And I got it. Robert Greene's got it on the screen. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You guys have favorite movies. You go back and watch time and time again. You got favorite movies where your spouse or roommate or friend, they can quote those movies because they've got it recorded and they go back. And uh, we said the other night that we have some things on tape and our daughter laughed at us that we had something on tape. But depending on what generation you're from, you have some favorite movies maybe on DVD or DVR or if you're my age on VHS tape. And you, uh, you play those, right? You play them. And so what, you, what we do intentionally with movies, we do unintentionally with memories. And it's so easy for us, that hurtful comment, that hateful behavior, the person that abused you, the person who walked out on you, it's so easy to hold on to that and to rehearse it and to rehearse it and rehearse it. And it th we think, this is a counterintuitive psychology, but I'm telling you the truth. It's counterintuitive psychology, but we think if I vent about this, it'll be better. If I vent, I won't be violent. If I vent, I'll, it'll bring healing. Not, there's a fine line, but listen to me. But it's so easy. And what we do when we keep a record of wrongs is we begin to rehearse and we rehearse and we rehearse. And what we do intentionally uh, with our favorite movies, we do unintentionally with our least favorite memories. And those things and those people that have hurt us, we replay it and we replay it and we replay it. And we get a strange sense of moral superiority over somebody. Look what they did to me. I would never do that. They did that. I didn't. They owe me. And we play that over and over, and we find some friends that we can talk to about it because we think it's healthy, and it's been, and we bring those friends in. And what do they do? We bring friends in who will reinforce our victimhood. And we replay and rehash and rehearse over and over again. And here we're confronted with this hard but beautiful truth that love is not irritable, Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. One of my favorite writers put it this way. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll your tongues, the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. 
to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain that you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Let me say in much less poetic ways, I know the feeling. It's been a part of my darker times. And I will tell you that it's easy to think this. If I don't rehearse it, if I don't bring it up, if I don't keep it going, they're, they're getting away with it. But what is happening is it's getting the best of you. And God has got them. And God has got it. And we need to learn that love doesn't keep a record of wrong. People that are easily ir- angry, people that are irritable, people are, that are prone to act out and hurt and damage other people, it's not the way of love. It's, those are people who are keeping a record of wrongs. I read a book years ago, and it was so good, it was re-released under a different title. It was first called, It Came From Within, The Four Monsters That Attacked the Human Heart. And then the writer, who's a pastor, re-released it as Enemies of Your Heart. And he put it this way, because we've been talking about some of this in our love series. Uh, guilt says, I owe you. This is so brilliant. Guilt says, I owe you. Greed says, I owe me. Envy says, God owes me. And anger says, you owe me. And people who are angry, Walk around with a sense of you owe me. This world owes me. And so we're prone. We're prone to mislove. We're prone to live in hate. We're prone to miss out on what God has for us, his best for us. With every um, enemy of the heart, this writer, this pastor would say that God gives us an answer to it. For guilt, what do you do? You confess. That's the gift. And by the way, there's no way around that. When you try to cover up, when you try to contain it, God doesn't bless that. But the answer to guilt is to confess it. The answer to greed is to give. It's why we don't make apologies to ask you to join us in this journey, this joyful journey of generosity. What you're clinging tightly to and clutching tenaciously, your money and your time, hand that over to God. Worship God with that. If you don't give God those things, uh, you're not fully worshiping God. He doesn't have other parts of your heart. And some of you, the, the level of hypocrisy that we can live with, we're like, God bless me. I need a new job. God, give me this promotion. God, help me. God, open up a door. But you haven't bought, brought God into the financial area of your life. Envy. We talked about this last week in, in other words, but celebrate other people. We talked about praying for other people. That's the way to break the back of envy. And for anger, there's only one way around anger. It's to forgive. The only way, and that's the gift that God gives you and I, is to forgive, to learn to forgive. Paul says, notice, he says, Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but can I tell you, love keeps a record. Love does keep a record. Look at me. Love keeps a record of what is right. Love keeps a record of what is right. It's not going to be enough for you to say, well, I've been hurt. And look, look at me. If you live long enough, you're going to be hurt. If you, li- if you live long enough, you're going you're gonna to experience rejection. The only answer to not being rejected is to live on a deserted island. And that doesn't work well. It didn't work well for Tom Cruise and Wilson the Volleyball in Castaway, right? It's just not a life that you want to sign up for. But if you live in this world, if you sit on pews with people and get in groups together and go to ball fields and go to school and go to work and interact and serve other people, you're going to experience rejection. Things are going to, people are going to hurt you. Uh, love is not irritable, uh, but we live in a world full of irritants. And People are the number one source of our irritants. The person in front of us, the person who cuts us off in traffic when we're in a hurry and we suddenly are seized with a desire to um, 
offer them a non-faith-based gesture with our fingers or hands or whatever. The, 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 people, the number one source of irritants in our lives are, are people, other people. But forgiveness is this great gift that God gives us. Love keeps a record of right. I learned early to hide God's word in my heart. I had a grandmother who, um, don't get emotional, don't get emotional, don't get emotional, who taught me when I was a teenager to memorize scripture. And she said, uh, first time I ever heard anybody say the brain's a muscle, work, work that muscle through memorizing scripture. It'll be amazing uh, what else you can remember. And she said, hide God's word in your heart. Now, memorization can be mechanical and legalistic and a point of pride or something. But if you memorize and meditate and think about it and ask God prayerfully if it's true and begin to ask God to work. Let me say this. Paul said this in Philippians 4.8 to another church and to us today. He said, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything of excellence and anything that is great, think on these things. Think on these things. Keep a record in your mind of God's goodness. Keep a record. Look at me, church. I know I'm working against a lot here in this room when I say this, but you have more control over your thought life than you ever, ever can imagine. There's a lot in this life you can't control, but you can control so much of your thought life. And that mood, that irritability, that being easily angered, so much of it is your body and your mind and your, neuro, your neural circuitry being prone and giving itself over to keeping a record of wrongs and thinking bad thoughts. But what if you kept a record of what is right? What if the true and noble and good things, what if the lovely and praiseworthy and excellent things, listen, love thinks excellent thoughts. Love thinks excellent thoughts. God is a creator God. He is created and he's created a world, James 1, where every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down for the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting of shadow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he gives you good gifts. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to love the world and to offer his life as a ransom for many, for all. It is good news of great joy for all people. Uh, everything that he's given you, everything that you need for life and godliness, uh, nothing, nothing will come between you. Nothing will come between you and the love of Christ. He's working everything out for good. If you're called and according to his purpose, he's working that out for you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. He gives you good things. He gives you good gifts. He gives you everything you need and mercy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Uh, his eye is on the sparrow. I know that he watches me. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That is our God and that is the word and that is true. And as you begin to believe some of those things and experience those things as experiential truth, like you do gravity around you, man, let me ask you, what kind of mood are you going to be in? Love thinks excellent thoughts. Love keeps a record. It just doesn't keep a record of wrong. And I'm asking you today in love, this is my pastor's heart beating for you, beating for some people who are very beat up, who are ready to give up. And I'm saying to you, you can think excellent thoughts and you can become a more loving person. I'm asking you to crush the notion that you will become a loving person if God puts more lovable people in your life. Banish the thought and ask God 
to commit, that you commit to him to develop you as a more loving person and to work on this character in you. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It keeps a record of rights. It thinks on the good things. So this word irritability, let's be honest, it seems small and trivial. Like, ah, I'll do all the good other things, but irritability, it's not that big a deal. And I've, I've been irritable and people around me love me and their family, they gotta, they gotta forgive me anyway, right? I kinda, I contribute some income around here, help pay the mortgage, so they'll look past it. But I'm saying to you, this gateway drug, this mood, it's a big thing. And it's not a small thing. It's not a soft thing. And it, 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 it influences a soul. And it can mean life or death. Many of you remember the story. We hearkened back on parts of this a couple of weeks ago. But many of you remember the story of King Saul. King Saul led Israel. And Israel had just defeated some really bad guys, some bloodthirsty people who were going to rape and pillage. So it was a kind of a good victory. I know some of us are hard, you know, we have a hard time celebrating violence, but it's like, you know, these killings prevented so many more killings. And this is King Saul. Israel had won. Uh, They should have been playing cool in the gang, celebrate good times and having a big festival. In fact, they were, but King Saul wasn't happy. And look what he said in 1 Samuel 18, 8. Saul was furious and he resented this song. What kind of mood is Saul in? They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Listen, forget the dead bodies for a second. This is the way we think. You find something that's true, and then you you conclude this, and your conclusion is the worst possible outcome. One more time real quick. I'm historically accurate when I said Israel had just won. There was a lot at stake. They just pushed back and defeated. They, they vanquished their enemy. They should have been celebrating. King Saul is the king, and he's not in a good mood because he's thinking, uh, I don't want to share my throne. I don't want to share my crown. They like King David more than me. They don't like me enough. The people don't want me to be king. And Saul went into this, if you know some... Uh, American history. He went into Richard Nixon, Nixon type of paranoia, thinking about who's out to get him and having these, uh, in his delusions of grandeur, he was having delusions of negativity and thinking through all these worst case scenarios and it got the best of him. He could have been in a really good mood. He could have been celebrating. Let me stop and ask the obvious. I can't help but think today that this could be some of us where something good has happened in your life. God is setting some things up and he's doing a work in your life, but you're more worried about what you don't have. And your thoughts are spiraling downward and you're not in a good mood and you're prone to irritability and to being angry because you feel threatened by other people. You feel threatened by this. And Saul, man, this could have been so good. And by the way, he was the king. Israel had won. David worked for him and David was a loyal dude. Like you can't find any crack in that story. Like this is on King Saul. This is on King Saul. Just like today, this could be on you. You, This could be the day where you get flat and you get before the Lord and do business with him. As this story plays out, Jonathan is David's best friend, young David, and he's also King Saul's son. He He goes to his dad, King Saul, to confront him because love confronts. And he confronted his dad and King Saul, the dad, um, resisted that. He was in a bad mood. He was irritable. And he uh, took a, a spear and he slung it at his son's head. And he was expecting and even wanting his son to be afraid. Typically, when you throw a spear at somebody's head, you're hoping they'll be afraid. 
But notice the response in 1 Samuel 20, verse 34. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved. Um, this is Jonathan, sorry. For he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. Fear is a negative energy force. And fear causes you to run from the problem. Anger is a negative energy force, but it can be used in constructive ways because anger, when you get angry, you go to something. You see an injustice, you're like, enough, enough of this. And you go to something. And some of the great causes, civil rights causes and other things in our land have, have come because somebody said, I'm not going to be afraid. I have every reason in the world to be afraid, but I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to walk toward this and there's going to be this righteous kind of anger. By the way, good question to ask. How do you know if it's the righteous anger of God? When are you allowed to really get angry? Well, let me just preach from the story. If, um, you, uh, if your dad is really mistreating your best friend and you go to him to confront him and he throws a spear at your head, then uh, you have a right to be angry. Uh, it sounds good, doesn't it? Ah, oh, yeah, I get to fly off the handle. Be very careful. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But we see here that Jonathan... He did the right thing. And by the way, if you know this story, Jonathan was loyal to his dad. He stayed with him. He fought to the end with his father, who was uh, deranged in many ways. But he stayed with him. King Saul dies. Jonathan dies. And again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But David's got this young boy, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Yeah. And uh, he's got that young, this young lad. And he takes him in. And he, he feeds him. This young boy who had nothing, who could have been a rival to David. And he had just witnessed that. And he says, you know, there's a better way. Which is why you hear me so often say the Bible is not some uh, you know, story of, of people being paragons of moral virtue. And David looks and says, you know, there's a better way. You don't have to be so irritable. You don't have to be so envious. You don't have to be so proud. And he invites this young boy to his table. And in Scripture, you're like, why would, you know, you see this in Scripture, you're like, why would he do this? Why would you invite a potential enemy, someone who could be a rival to you, to your table? And many of you know that David would later write the 23rd Psalm, some of the most famous writings in all the world. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he goes on to say, he prepares for me a table in the presence, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I better get the 23rd Psalm right because y'all know that one. I stumbled a little bit. But David is writing this and saying, hey, God, I want to trust you with this. I trust your goodness. I don't have to go the other way toward hate and irritability and envy and rivalry and all these things. I want to close with a, a couple of stories because love is the best way. Love is the most excellent way. I've got a friend who attends our church who uh, years ago heard me talk about in the early days. I mentioned um, another friend who would come to Fonder Church on Christmas Eve only. He would attend our church, and after a Christmas Eve service at Fondren Church, he would drive to a Waffle House, and he, would, um, he and his family would save a lot of money, and they would find a server at Waffle House, and they would like give a massive tip, just massive tip. And it would be like Merry Christmas to whoever's working there at the Waffle House. And I shared that by way of sermon illustration on something uh, later. And another friend of mine said uh, he was so inspired by that, he started going to a Waffle House. 
and he met a server named Evelyn, and his observation at Waffle House, I, I take this the right way, but people that worked at Waffle House oftentimes have a lot going against them, that they're not making high wages, and they've had to overcome a lot, and there's, there's challenges there, to generally speaking, to people that are working at Waffle House. So my friend went, he met this server named Evelyn, he gave her a $20 tip. She was so happy, she gave him a hug. He said he went back a couple weeks later, he gave her a bigger tip, she wanted to marry him. He said, he, he said, Robert, I started saving my money. He asked me, who was, who was more happy, you know, to go to Waffle House? Uh, who was more happy than Evelyn? He said, I was. And he said, I started saving money. And I, I confirmed at that point, do, do you tithe to our church? He said, yes. I'm like, okay, I'll listen to your, to your story. I said, I don't, I don't want you to give Evelyn all the money. So he said, yeah, Robert, I tithe the Fondren Church, and, but, I, but I've been saving. I, I, I go and I, I give this money turn. He, he, you know, he, we were talking, he's like, you know, if she's late, uh, you know, filling up my coffee cup, or if she brings the hash brown smothered instead of sliced or sliced into the uh, diced or whatever, uh, whatever they do at Waffle House. Um, but he said, I'm not irritable with her. And I don't know if my friend realized he was being so vulnerable, but he said, when I'm at Waffle House, like that's the man that I want to be. I want to live up, like, I want to be that guy everywhere I go. And I said to him, and I'm saying to you now, you can be. You really can be. Love is patient, and love is kind, and love is not, it doesn't envy, it's not easily irritable, angered. It's, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And you, you and I, we can, we can be that way. God can grow that in us and it's committing to loving his way as Lauren and the team make their way up I really do want to close with this um, there's a story and I I, uh, I love our people who are in recovery they mean the world to me and to Fondry Church there's a story it's a recovery story and it has a couple of different takes on it but it's a parable of a group of addicts and they are, uh, they're getting on a boat called Recovery, sailing to an island called Sobriety. And everybody runs and they get on the boat and they are, they're sailing to sobriety, to freedom, to moral sanity, to a future and a hope. And they, they get on the boat, but there was one woman. Her name was Mary and she missed the boat. And Mary's on the shore and the people on the boat look back and they call to her, Mary, Mary, jump in, jump in and swim, dive in, swim to us. Mary, swim to us. And Mary jumps in and she swims. She's making her way to the boat and everybody is reaching over and they're clapping and cheering and calling out to her. But she begins to sink. You see, Mary had a rock and they saw that rock and Mary was holding on to this rock and they started yelling to her, Mary, drop the rock, drop, drop the rock, Mary, drop the rock. But Mary looked at her rock. This rock was her pride. It was her stubbornness. It was her resentment and anger and woundedness. It represented the hard feelings she had to people who had hurt her. But she looked at her rock and she thought, you know, I really kind of enjoy this rock because it helps me be miserable at other people and I become secure in my misery. I become familiar with my pain. So in a sick sort of way, I, I like this rock, but in a moment, of clarity she drops the rock she swims to the shore and they are there to pull her up and everybody's cheering for her and drying her off love is not irritable 
Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love drops the rock. And you know, when you're holding a rock, you don't have your hands. Not only is it hurting you and weighing you down, causing you to miss the boat, like you don't have your hands to do what God has called you to do. And I'm saying today that for some of you, if not many of you, today could be a day where you drop the rock. And Mary found a lightness and a freedom that people who are finding victory and recovery can tell you about. Some of them come to our church. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what I hope for you today. Would you stand and let me pray? Father, would you help us internalize the truth of your word? And Lord, where love is blocked and where love is hard, particularly with our moods and our irritability and our anger and our rehearsing of old memories, would you help us in letting go of the rock? And we thank you that sin was met by love on the cross. And you've given us this incredible love that we can live more freely, joyfully in light and in lightness. Jesus, this is our prayer, and you we pray. Amen. Come today, sing, all sing, and come today. If we can pray over you, the altar's open, and we are here. It'd be an honor to pray with you today.